This is the One Verse Podcast, where we liberate scripture from religion one verse at a time. Welcome to another episode of the One Verse Podcast. I am Jeremy Myers. This is part two of our study of Genesis 2, 1 through 3, and is the final episode of our study of the first creation account in Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3. Uh, This is the seventh day of creation. We began to look at it last week when uh, we considered various key terms and some issues in the text, and I also began to show you how this text serves as a theological polemic against some of the religions in the days of Moses. And I sort of left you with a cliffhanger at the end of that episode. Sorry about that. But uh, we'll pick up with that today. Thank you for waiting. Now, you're going to hear something about the Sabbath, which you have likely never heard before. But more than that... What you're going to hear regarding the Sabbath will likely liberate you from the religious rules and regulations that you might worry about regarding the Sabbath. So today, uh, what we're going to see will liberate you from Sabbath bondage. Your Sabbath observance will be liberated from the shackles of religion, and you will be brought into the way to observe the Sabbath that God always intended it to be. I'm convinced of it. By the end of today's show, here's my promise. You will be excited to observe the Sabbath. Because you will be invited to observe it the way God himself does. Now that's a good way to end this uh, study of the first week of creation, the first account of creation. Stick around and join me. Uh, This episode of the One Verse Podcast is brought to you by Theology.fm. It's my other podcast. I share with you some of the theologians, pastors, teachers, podcasts, writers, authors who influence me and my thinking. So, uh, I share one every other week. I think I've got one from Wayne Jacobson coming up. Should be published at the same time as this podcast. Maybe it's Brian Zond. I now cannot remember which one it is. Anyway, the next two weeks, there'll be one from each. They're both great. Listen to them both. Head over to Theology.fm to learn more or simply search for Theology.fm on iTunes. Now, I got a lot to cover today's episode. So, let's dive in. A few weeks ago, my computer crashed and burned, almost literally. Uh, the central processor overheated and, and burnt itself off the motherboard of the computer. I was working along, and I heard this clunk, and everything, my computer just, everything just died. Uh, the CPU fell off the motherboard and landed on the bottom of the computer. I didn't even know this was possible, and so I... Uh, frantically spent the next couple days trying to get all the files off of my hard drive. I mean, obviously, the CPU is not connected to the motherboard anymore. I can't even turn on the, the computer. And um, so I had to get a new computer and try to transfer all the files to the new computer. It took me about a week to transfer all those files, reinstall all the programs, and get everything set up the way I like it on my new computer. And at one point, I literally, literally had all the guts of my old computer lying all over the floor of my office. I had to get in there and just tear everything out. I had to get at that hard drive. I had to get 
anyway, all the memory pieces off of there because I was going to try and upgrade them on my new computer. Anyway, um, once I got everything set up, though, I, I was right back in my chair writing my blog posts and books, checking my email and recording my podcasts, just as if nothing had ever happened, aside from the wasted time. Everything was good and right with the world again. I stopped work on transferring all my files and programs to the new computer and resumed the work of using my computer the way it was supposed to be. The way I love doing, which is to study scripture and theology and teach it to others so that you also can learn about God and find freedom in his love. And why did I start off with that little story? Not to make you empathize with me about my computer woes, but to give you an illustration on what is going on with the Sabbath rest of God in Genesis 2, 1, 2, 3. Another example, it'll all make sense here in a minute, but another example that I want to share with you might be when God tells the people, right when they are about to enter the promised land, you can read about this in Deuteronomy 12, Joshua 1, and other places, he says that after they defeat the people who were there, they will what? find rest from their enemies, and will live in safety. So that invitation there, or that instruction, or uh, that sort of prediction that they will find rest once they enter into the land, does that mean that after they enter into the land and defeat their enemies, that they will never have to do any more work? That there will never be any work for them to do in the promised land? No, actually, it means quite the contrary. It means that once they get into the land and defeat their enemies— that normal life can commence, that real work can begin, that the activities of planting, harvesting, buying, selling, raising their families can be carried out within the regular routines of life. So in that instance, in that context, to enter into the rest of the promised land is not to cease all activity but is actually to transition from the activity of defeating their enemies and coming into the land and enter into or begin the real activity, the normal activity of living life the way God wanted them to live it within the promised land. One more illustration of what it means for God to enter into his rest. In Exodus 35 to 49, Moses and the Israelites set out to construct a tabernacle for God, sort of this portable tent of worship. So they gather all the materials, and the craftsmen put it all together for its intended purposes. And then it's very interesting, near the end of Exodus 39, we read that all the work on the tabernacle was completed. That's Exodus 39, 32. And so Moses saw all that had been made, and he blessed it. And then he sanctified it through a consecration ceremony. That's described in Exodus 40. And it is only then, after this, uh, that that Moses saw all that had been made, and he blessed it and sanctified it, that then the tabernacle was considered to be finished, and it was now open for business for the priests and the sacrifices and, and the offerings and everything else that was going to be brought into the tabernacle. Now, we could go over to the construction of the temple in 1 Kings, Solomon's temple, and we could talk about that as well, and several other similar illustrations throughout the Bible. In fact, you could follow similar events, a similar series of events with the construction and inauguration of almost any temple for any god of any religion in biblical times. Uh, And usually at the inauguration ceremonies for these temples, uh, they would tell the story. They would gather all the people after the temple had been built as they're starting to welcome their god into the temple. 
And in this inauguration ceremony, this celebration, this grand opening, they would tell the story of the particular God for whom the temple was built. Um, They would talk about how he came into his power and why he was now living in this temple built for himself and why they, as the people of this God, had had been chosen as his people and why they were going to worship him and why he was worthy of worship more than any of the others and so on. In fact, a lot of scholars believe that the Enuma Elish, which is this Babylonian creation account I've been telling you about frequently as we go through our study of Genesis 1, was sort of the story of Marduk, the chief deity of the Enuma Elish, and how he came into his power. If you might remember at the beginning of the Enuma Elish, he's sort of a nobody god. But the gods have this problem with Tiamat, and they, they, they're going to war with Tiamat. And so Marduk sort of steps up to the plate and says, okay, I can handle Tiamat, but if I'm successful, you need to make me the chief deity. And so he goes to war, and he becomes the chief deity. And a lot of uh, scholars believe that this story, this Babylonian Enuma Elish, this Babylonian creation account, was a story that was told at the inauguration of the temple that was built for Marduk. Um, and the whole thing is, uh, there's seven tablets, and the last tablet, um, two whole tablets actually, out of the seven, the, the last two tablets basically are devoted to describing the rest of Marduk in his temple. They glorify him and praise his name by naming his 50 names, and uh, the rest of Marduk coming to rest in his temple is the culmination, the pinnacle, the final event the grand opening of, of the temple to Marduk and is the end of the Enuma Elish account. You're probably beginning to see sort of the truth that I want you to see about the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2. What we have here, and I've been trying to point this out as we go along, is not a scientific account of the creation of the world, but is actually a temple inauguration text, or in our case, a tabernacle inauguration text, which praises God and gives glory to him in a ceremony for the the tabernacle which had been completed. And in this text, as we've seen over and over in Genesis 1-1 through 2-3, God is presented as better and superior to any other God that the Israelites had known about or encountered, the gods of the Egyptians, the gods of the Canaanites, and the gods of the Babylonians. Moses is going to great lengths to show how Yahweh, the God of Israel, is better than any of those other gods. And I think we've so often missed the true significance of Genesis 1 and 2 because we, we don't live in the times when temple inauguration ceremonies took place. And this is especially true when we look at day 7 in Genesis 2, 1 through 3. We, we, we look at the, the last verses of this account, and um, we just don't understand it. Uh, we, we miss what day 7 is all about because uh, we, we don't live in the times when there's temple inauguration ceremonies. But I don't think the people living in Moses' time would have missed it. They would have seen the repetitive phrases that Moses uses in Genesis 2, 2 through 3, the ones I talked about last time, and they would have immediately recognized this text for what it was. They would have seen this as a temple text, uh, as a description of the completion of a temple and the ceremony that took place to bring the God into the temple. Here in Genesis 2, 1 through 3, the rest of God 
is the culminating and concluding event and is the, the pinnacle of the creation event. Well, the concluding event anyway. The pinnacle was the creation of mankind. This is the culminating and concluding event. We talked some about that last time. Uh, but the Bible, unlike the Enuma Elish, doesn't go on and on and on for two whole chapters naming the names of God. You know, that's what, that's what they did for Marduk in the Enuma Elish. But uh, there's not any trace of that here. It's just two short verses where uh, God is said to enter into his rest. He's finished all the work that he's, gonna, he's done. He's seen that it's good. And so now he enters into his rest. Uh, back then, when the various religious groups built a temple to one of their gods, basically, let me just describe it for you again, the temple was not considered complete until they carried out this temple inauguration ceremony, and part of that would be them carrying the statue of their god into the, the place where he would sit, on his pedestal or on his uh, platform or whatever it might be, in front of the altar, and uh, this would be with pomp and ceremony and music and singing and the telling of his story and the priests and all of their robes. And, you know, there would be sacrifices and all these things would be happening. And only once the God had come to, had been carried into his temple and was placed within the temple, would the temple then be open for business. And it was then said that the God had come to rest in his temple. It was taught that the God had entered his rest. And then the temple was considered blessed and sanctified by the God because he was now in the temple. And the temple was then open for business. The temple had been built, it had been set up, and the God had come to rest within it. The temple was now sanctified by his presence, blessed by his presence, and the real work, all the preparatory work was over now the real work, the real religious work with the priests and the priestesses and the sacrifices to the gods and the prayers and all that stuff could now begin in earnest. I'm sure you're seeing the point here. On the day that a god comes into his rest inside a temple, it's not a day when the work ceases, but it's actually the day when the real temple work begins. What this means is that the rest of God, if we're going to follow the parallel here, that the people in Moses' day certainly would have seen, the rest of God is not about a tired or weary God stopping his work. We don't believe that was true of God anyway. He didn't get tired or weary. It's also not about a tireless God, you know, taking a day off from his work. You know, oh, I got to show an example to the humans about how they need to take a day off from work. No, it's not even about that. The rest of God in Genesis 2, is about the creator God entering into the control room of his creation and now taking up the real work and responsibility of guiding his creation into the purposes for which he intended it. The rest of God means that God has entered into his resting place, the place where he sits and rules and reigns over the creation he has made. That is how to understand Genesis 2, 1-3. To the ancient readers, this text indicates that God has built himself a temple. And where is that temple? It's creation. And that God, when he enters into his rest, this is not him ceasing his activity, but is instead the beginning of his normal activity within his temple, within the creation that he has built. Let me put it another way. 
to talk about God resting, in the sense of, that it's used here in Genesis 2, is to talk about God beginning to really enjoy what he has made. Rest, for God, is not disengagement. You know, that's sometimes the way we think of rest. Well, God stops, he disengages. Uh, that's sometimes how gods of other religions rest. Oh, I'm so sick of those humans, I gotta get away from them. And they go up to Mount Olympus, or often to, to some heavenly place that humans can't get so they could get away from us and rest from us. But um, it's, it's, it's not that way, though, with Judaism, with Christianity, with the God of the Bible. God's rest is him coming to his resting place, which is in his temple, which is where he can now become engaged and involved with his creation. For God, rest is where he enters into the place where he can now really get to work with the creation he has made, to begin his work in earnest. Uh, Isaiah 66.1 says the cosmos is the temple of God. Okay, and based on that, once God completed building his temple, which he did in Genesis 1, 1, uh, 1, 1 through 31, he now enters into his rest within the temple in Genesis 2, 2 and 3, and the real work of running the day-to-day operations of his temple really begins. Okay, it's like my computer. My computer crashed, uh, and it took me about a week to get my new computer set up. It was a lot of work, transferring the files, installing the programs, checking the settings, but Once all that was done, the work wasn't done. It's not like then I can sit back and say, okay, I've set up my computer. I can now rest. No, what that means is now I can sit down, rest in my chair that I'm sitting at right now as I record this, looking at my computer screen with my keyboard and my mouse, all right, and my recorder all set up, ready to go so that I can do the real work that my computer was meant to do. Okay, and once I saw that everything was good, all the settings were set, the programs were installed, everything looked good, then I could sit down to begin the real work. All right, and it's the same way with the creation of uh, the building of the temple. In fact, I even mentioned that verse where a very, very similar terminology. After all the temple was built, Moses looked at all that he has made and he sanctified and blessed the temple, just like what we read here in, in Genesis 2. God saw all that he had made, and he finished the work that he had made, and then he blessed the seventh day, and he sanctified it. Okay, The terminology is is very identical between what God does at the end of his creation and what Moses did at the end of building the tabernacle for God. Okay, And that is, it tells us what is going on in Genesis 2, 1 through 3. God has stopped setting everything up, and now he sits down, he comes to his resting place within the temple he has built, so that he can begin the real work of running creation. Entering his rest is equivalent to being enthroned, to taking up his role as ruler of the cosmos. Okay. God uh, came to end the work of creating, making, and preparing, and begin the work of sustaining, maintaining, guiding, leading, and directing. We're in the middle of a presidential election here in the United States. Okay, we're, what, 10 months or so away from the election? Can't come too soon. Between now and then, there's going to be a lot of work by all the candidates as they go about trying to get votes. There's going to be ad campaigns and debates and and all sorts of things. I don't know everything that goes involved, but as soon as the president-elect, whoever he or she may be, 
Okay, as soon as they are finally elected president, does that mean their work has finished? No. As any former president can tell you, the day the president takes office, that does not mean their work is over. It just means the real work has begun. Okay, again, that is how to understand Genesis 2, 1, 2, 3. God sits down in his chair and says, let the games begin. All right. And that is really what happens in Scripture, too. We're going to start here, actually, in two weeks. Next week, I'm going to be doing something a little bit different, sort of a summary podcast episode of Genesis 1, so people can catch up if they miss some of the episodes. But uh, after that, we'll begin looking at Genesis 2-4, and the games really do begin. The, the pieces of the chessboard have been set up. God has taken his seat. Humans are given their will and their freedom and their responsibility real players in this in this world that God has created, and uh, the humans make a move. It ends up in sin. So God makes a move, okay? And this is the way it goes throughout creation. I don't really like to describe it as a chess match, but there is. There's The biblical story is all about move and counter-move, all right? And uh, the devil and certain humans thinking they've painted or, or got God into a corner, and, and somehow he gets a, gets a move to to restore order so that, you know, once again, we can be invited to enjoy his creation with him. This is the story of the Bible. So, what does all that mean for you and me? All right, especially in regard to Sabbath rest. Now, later scripture, like in Exodus and so on, does instruct God's people to take a day of rest each week. All right, and I am not arguing that. The thing is, is, the real question is, What does that practically mean in light of how God rested on the seventh day? To put it another way, let me me rephrase the question. If God's rest on the seventh day is actually him doing the real work, beginning the real work for which he made creation, uh, and since this seventh day never ended, we we talked about that last time, there's not this, uh, and it was evening, and it was morning the seventh day, statement at the end of the seventh day, which means, as Jesus himself said in John 5, 17, God has been working until now, okay, then uh, what does that mean for us to join God in his rest? I think that it doesn't necessarily mean cessation from work, but instead entering into our proper place and role within God's kingdom. In fact, that's really what rest is. Rest is everything in its proper place, doing its proper thing. A lot of people think of rest as not doing anything. You know, sitting on your couch, twiddling your thumbs, watching the paint dry or something like that. I mean, some religions, that's about all it seems you can do. Okay, maybe you can read your Bible and do a Bible study and pray or something. But again, it all depends on how rigorous the people want to use this uh, Sabbath day rest concept. But, but that's, not what, that's not what it meant for God to rest. It mean, meant for him to begin his actual work. And that's what it means for us to rest as well. To begin our proper, to, to live in our proper place, function within our proper role. Rest is um, God's will being done everywhere by everyone in everything. It means that uh, just as God's rest is actually the beginning of his real work, our rest is could be, maybe, to participate in our real work. The work that God has made us to do. The work that God created us for. I think, probably, if we sort of compare what we're learning here about rest with what we read about 
the seventh day rest, the rest of the seventh day, the Sabbath day rest, later in Exodus and other places in Scripture, that we can understand this sort of rest as being when normal routines can be established and enjoyed, where life can be enjoyed. Rest is not necessarily cessation from activity, but is actually participation with God in God's activity and God's work, with, with, with God allowing us to enjoy life. Let me back up. You might remember, we looked at uh, Genesis 1, 28-30, and these three things that God instructed the humans to do. Enjoy your human relationships, enjoy good food, enjoy your animals. Okay, Those are three activities that all of us like to do. We enjoy doing. Now, life gets pretty hectic. If you have a job like I do that maybe you don't like a whole lot, well, uh, a day off often gets filled with mowing the lawn and, and running errands and paying bills and making phone calls and all that is part of life. That's fine. But if it's possible, you could take a day of rest. And by that, I do not mean you sit on your couch twiddling your thumbs. I also don't necessarily mean you go down to a brick building with a steeple on the corner and sit in a padded pew while some guy up front in a suit preaches a sermon to you. I don't necessarily mean that either. Instead, maybe you could do some of those three things that God instructs humans to do in Genesis 1, 28-30. Living within your proper role and your proper function within God's creation. Those are very human activities. Spending time with family, eating food, playing with your pets. Okay? To, to engage in a day of rest, a Sabbath rest, is not necessarily to fill your time on that day with religious activity, but instead to fill your time on that day with human activity, of enjoying the good things that God made for us to enjoy. And when we see it that way, when we see that enjoying life is really what God instructed us, even commanded us, invited us to do, then those activities also become worship. We modern Christians sometimes think that worship only takes place in that brick building when we're raising our hands and singing songs and listening to a sermon, but But worship, when we really understand worship, worship takes place every minute of every day. And when we take a day out to participate with God in Sabbath rest, we can do that by doing the things he instructed us to do, which is to enjoy the creation that he has given to us to enjoy, to enjoy life. Here's the thing, though. Do not, let me emphasize this, do not begin to make what I've just said another religious rule. I am not saying, God did not intend for you to make it a law that one day out of every seven, you are to spend a whole day with your family, barbecuing outside, throwing a frisbee to your dog. Those are the things we must do one day out of the week. No, in fact, barbecuing outside, throwing a frisbee to your dog by certain religious you know, Sabbath day standards, even those would be sinful. But here's the point. As soon as you begin to make rules about what you can and cannot do on the Sabbath, you know, whatever day that is for you, typically, you know, in Jewish times, in Hebrew scriptures, that was Saturday. But, you know, if if you can't do it that way, I'm getting into the weeds here. That's not the point. Okay, as soon as you begin to make rules about the Sabbath, what you can and cannot do, what day it's supposed to be, how long it is, okay, as soon as you do that, The Sabbath rest then becomes uh, just a bunch of keeping rules. 
The Sabbath is not the sort of thing that has to be regulated or should have to be regulated by rules. As soon as you begin to make rules about the Sabbath, you've missed the entire point. That's the whole point of Jesus with the Sabbath day controversies he had with the religious leaders in his day. They had all these rules. And Jesus just came along and said, you don't even understand the first thing about the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. That means it's a day for you to enjoy. And if you're not enjoying it because you make all these religious rules about it, then you're making the Sabbath too much work. Anyway, I've got some sermons that I've talked about that before. You can read some of those. They're on my website. Really resting with God is not about not doing work. It is about participating with God in whatever you see him doing. That's what Jesus said. You know, he says, I only do what I see my father doing. And if you don't see God doing anything, if you're looking around and say, I don't see where God's at work, guess what that means for you? You don't have to do anything either. (laughs) I'm serious. But if you want to begin seeing what God is doing, just because you don't see God doing anything, that doesn't mean he's not working. Here's the thing, though. You need to start training yourself to see what God is doing and then join him in it. Uh, But to do that, you sort of need to learn to look around to see where God might actually be working. Again, most of the time, we Christians seem to think that God can only work when we have, you know, Jesus' name on our lips and Bibles on our laps and we're sitting in a pew or in a circle with the you know chairs and everybody there has got their little pious smile on their face and we open and close with prayer and you know all those sorts of things. That's the time when God is really at work. No, nothing could be further from the truth. God is at work out in your garden. If you care to go out and take a look. God is at work as you discuss the weather with your neighbor, if you open your ears to listen. God is at work all the time and all around. And to participate with God in his rest is to participate with God in whatever he is doing around you. I watched a TV show uh, last week or the week before, I think it was, Last Man Standing. It's a, a, a show I watch every once in a while with my wife. It's with uh, that comedian, Tim Allen. You might remember him, Tim the Toolman Taylor from that old Home Improvement show in the 90s. Uh, this new show, Home Improvement, is basically the exact same, same show as, um, I'm sorry, this new show, Last Man Standing, is basically exactly the same show as Home Improvement. Except uh, in that show from the 90s, he had three sons. In this show, he has three daughters. (laughs) Other than that, it's about the same. Uh, Since my wife and I have three daughters, we love, we we just find the show hilarious. Anyway, the episode we watched last week was extremely insightful. I don't know what Tim Allen's, you know, religious position is, but I found the show to be extremely insightful about God and how he's at work and what it means to attend church. There's a, there's a guy, a character in the, in the TV show called Kyle and uh, he had this routine where he would go help his boss open up the store, and um, it was really meaningful to his boss, but Kyle felt guilty because he was missing church. So he you know, bails out on his boss to go, quote-unquote, hang out with God at church. Eventually, though, by the end of the, the show, Kyle realizes that where God is really at work and where God really wants him on Sunday morning is to go open up the store with his boss. Uh, It's a pretty insightful idea for a sitcom, I thought. 
And it's exactly in line with what we read about God in Scripture, what Jesus reveals with us about how we can partner with God's work in this world, and what we're learning about God here, and what it means to rest with God. So, what should you be doing on the day of rest? Well, when God sat down on the seventh day to rest, he was actually sitting down to begin his work. The work was something he really enjoyed doing. For God, the work of running this world is the work that thrills and excites him. Uh, The Sabbath rest of God, it's not God ceasing from all activity in the world, but was him ceasing his work of creating the world so that he could now enter into the world and work within it the way he always wanted to in the first place. Uh, Think of the Sabbath rest as a transition from the creative work of setting things up to the communicative, the relational work of living within the temple, in the creation that God has made. So that can tell you and I how we also can enjoy a Sabbath rest. God sat down to do what he had planned, what he enjoyed doing. So, what do you want to, how can you uh, participate in a Sabbath rest? Well, figure out what it is you enjoy doing, what you love doing, because that is what God loves to do with you. And when you go do that, you are worshiping him. He is enjoying life with you because you are enjoying the life, the creation that he gave you. To, to rest with God is to enjoy this world that God has created, to join God in his restful ruling of this world. So if you're trying to figure out what it means to participate in the Sabbath rest, well, just let God be your guide. Just as his rest on the first Sabbath day involved him sitting down in the control room of the temple he had built for himself so that he might live, play, and romp through it with his creation. When God invites us, you and me, to participate with him in Sabbath rest, it is so that we might live and play and, yes, romp through creation with him. So, do you want to participate in the Sabbath rest? Fine. What do you enjoy doing? Go do that. Who do you enjoy doing it with? Invite them along. Whatever you do, enjoy life. Be fully human. Laugh a lot. Love more. For when you live this way, you are fully participating in the Sabbath rest of God. Well, I hope that that perspective on the Sabbath rest was new to you and that you found it encouraging and helpful. Please, don't make the Sabbath rest too much work for yourself. Instead, enjoy the Sabbath rest as God himself enjoyed it and has been enjoying it until this very day. To be and live and work and function within his creation the way he intended and planned and made it. And you can do that too, by joining with God and living fully in this world with the people and the animals and the tasks and the responsibilities that he gave you to do that you find fulfilling and satisfying and enjoyable. That is how you can enjoy the Sabbath rest. Join God in his Sabbath rest. Do you have questions, comments, maybe even some concerns about the view I'm presenting in the Sabbath rest? That's fine. I'd love to hear them. Just go leave a comment or a question in the show notes for this episode. You can do that by going to redeeminggod.com slash Genesis 2 
one, two, three, and then I have a P2 for part two on the end of this one because we had part one last week. Thank you for listening. I look forward to reading what you have to say. And next week, as I said, we're going to do a summary episode of the entire first creation account. And then after that, move on into Genesis 2 and the second creation account. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you then.